I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. There aren't that many travel startups. So we spent really 10, 12 years building social proof and building customer trust and trying our best to make sure we deliver a great customer experience. As a result, we overinvest in customer service, both pre and post sale, because we know that the value of these customers is high. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. My guest today on Scaling Up is Adam Schwab, the CEO and co-founder of Luxury Escapes, a travel marketplace with almost a billion dollars in bookings annually. Adam's story is that of a quintessential and accomplished entrepreneur, one of trial and error, learning from mistakes and applying it to the next chapter as is always required. Luxury Escapes and its coming to being is exactly this, the twists and turns of a variety of businesses over almost a decade that eventually spun out something that was scalable and incredibly capital efficient. While the scaling story is largely unknown but nonetheless incredible, it's a story born out of customer obsession and providing consistent value to both sides of the marketplace. What comes next for Luxury Escapes is exciting enough to get Adam back from an 18-month sabbatical, and we not only discuss the many iterations of the business and its future, but also Adam has thought about his own journey as a leader. Buckle up, this is a fast-paced and frenetic way to end another great season of Scaling Up. The end of another season is a great time to thank all those who put in the hard work behind the scenes, Ben, our tireless editor, Rosie, whose research throughout gets brought to life, as well as James and Dave for their guidance throughout the series. We've already started to plan for 2023 and excited for a few new formats and ideas to come to life to make sure we continue to improve this project to optimise the learning and entertainment for both operators and investors alike. Now, on to Adam Schwab and the scaling story of Luxury Escapes. Adam, welcome to Scaling Up Luxury Escapes. It's a known brand, but the story in many respects is largely untold, but it is a great tale of Aussie entrepreneurial spirit. I must admit, it's been a hard business to research because every time I hit the website, I end up down a Maldives travel rabbit hole and my wife is trying to elicit another holiday out of me. But you are what I would describe a consummate entrepreneur. You've made a career out of solving problems through trial and error, but the common thread's always been around creating value for customers and creating a value proposition. So keen to get back to the founding story, but this is a lengthy one, so maybe best practice, I'll put some show notes in with some links to where you've told the long version, but from service departments to lead gen for restaurants to Groupon ripoffs to ultimately luxury escapes, tell me how this all came together Maybe after that, we'll pull out some lessons that you've learned along the way. Great. Um, yeah, let's give the crib notes version of the founder story because you know, I thought a few times and, and maybe people have heard it. And if not, it probably goes on a bit. So I'll give the five minute version. Flick back to 2004. Uh, I'm working at a law firm called Freehills, 
now I think is the biggest firm in the country. Back then was probably number two. But I think I always knew that I was never going to be a lawyer for life. There's some super smart people who work in that firm and I was just not at that absolute calibre. But I had some great mates and still have some great mates from there. But my, my best mate from school, a guy called Jeremy, uh, was working at ANZ Investment Bank as a trader at the time. He didn't really want to stay there. He wanted to do something for himself. And this is bef- well before the days of entrepreneurs being cool. Entrepreneurialism back then was very much Bond Scase. It wasn't something that people were proud to talk about. You wanted to be a banker or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. No one really wanted to be an entrepreneur back then. It's very much different now. This is pre-Spiegel, Zuckerberg, Musk. So it's a very different situation now. But back then, Jess has always been great at sort of bucking the trend and being contrarian and, and was just pushing me to go to start a business. But didn't really, neither of us had any great ideas. Again, this is pre-web, or certainly pre-web 2.0. Uh, the idea we came up with was just something we stumbled across. We were 23, 24 at the time and saw there could be a need for backpacker apartments. So well, that we mean like an apartment that someone would rent for two or three months. So they couldn't get a, a rental apartment themselves. So you had to buy furniture. It just didn't make sense. Uh, and you obviously don't want to stay in a hostel or a hotel for three months. So we sort of thought there's a nice middle market there for often people from Europe who call it flash packing in Melbourne for three to six months. We started it in sort of Melbourne Cup weekend of 2004 little do we know we started it seems really obvious now but backpacking is really seasonal so we started in november and we were bombarded with inquiry we thought oh how good is this jess quit his job after leave absence in april of 05 and started scaling up the business we were still living at home ironically then uh and didn't really have a clue what we were doing but kind of just figured it out uh so we scaled to sort of 40 or 50 of these backpacker apartments funded by cash flow so we had 70 grand or something each which we used to, to buy the furniture then scaled it up and got to sort of, yeah, 40, 50 apartments and probably a couple of million bucks in revenue or sales and a pretty low margin, admittedly. And then soon realised or, or sort of made to realise that this backpacker apartment thing probably had some regulatory issues. So moved to a corporate apartments model, did that for a couple of years or actually still had that business, did that full time for a couple of years, realised that it was, a, it was a nice business but not inherently scalable. So if we set up an apartment, we'd be putting the furniture together ourselves. So I, I got pretty good at putting flat pack furniture together. The Jez got really good at taking rubbish out uh, and we made a pretty good team. But ultimately we knew it wasn't as scalable as we would have hoped. But as part of that process, probably in 06, 07, 08, we actually bought half a dozen properties, sold the properties, paid back the debt pretty quickly, but had this million dollar windfall just because property prices went up. And we were able to style the properties, et cetera, et cetera, and sold them on our own terms. So had this million bucks, we were 28 at the time, and wanted something more scalable. So we, we were looking around for a business. This is 2009, so Web 2.0, just starting to sort of get moving. I happened to be in the UK, saw a business called Top Table, growing really well. It's since been bought by Booking.com or OpenTable and Booking.com. Uh, but it was effectively a location-based, discount-driven restaurant booking site. So imagine a, a dimmy or, or book a restaurant, but with discounts that are built in. Sounds like Eight Club. Exactly like Eight Club, which is a great business and, and love those guys. And those guys actually solved a bunch of stuff that people hadn't solved with their virtual credit cards. But we started that business, uh, but realised we just didn't have the capital to, to really get it going because we had sort of a million bucks. We thought we needed need more to build a marketplace of thousands of restaurants, I should say. Uh, in the meantime, Jez was in the US and saw a business called Groupon, quickest business to a billion dollars in sales, flying at the time, and said, instead of doing this restaurant thing, why don't we do this Groupon thing? We can create a database and then pivot back to the restaurant thing, which we thought was a, a better business, but it had much more startup costs. So we pivoted to the Groupon model in 2010, started that, then everybody else saw the Groupon model as well. We, weren't, we certainly weren't oracles there. By the time we launched in July, there was six or seven competitors, we became the biggest independent Groupon clone. We were called Zoopon originally. 
there was obviously Catch of Day had one called Scoop On, Channel 9 had one, Channel 7 had one, Channel 10 had one, um, News Corp had one. So there's a 82 at one stage. We were the biggest independent. We then bought, we, we sort of bought everyone, bar Groupon, who are now ironically worth less than us. They were worth 26 billion US at one point. But that business started in 2010 and it started really well, incredible momentum, incredible viral growth. But we realised probably within a year that there was inherent problems with the business model of that, of that business. The issues we had were twofold. Firstly, there was unit economic issues. So the average basket size was only 50 bucks and the repeat rate wasn't incredible because we didn't control the end-to-end user experience. So because of that, those two issues, it made the longevity of the business really difficult. So I think compare that to travel, which has neither of those issues. So the beauty of travel is your basket size is two grand or even higher, whereas basket size in local is 50 bucks. So you're paying the same to acquire a customer, you're getting a much bigger basket size, much bigger profit on first purchase. And the second beauty of travel business that doesn't exist in, in the local business is we're working with, in many cases, really good hotels who, A, are committed to hospitality and customer service. B, if they weren't, there's this thing called TripAdvisor and also Booking and Expedia have review sites. So there's really high, um, call it almost guardrails for hotels that if they do a bad job, they'll get slammed on TripAdvisor and they'll destroy the, the goodwill of the business. So hotels want to be good hospitality businesses anyway, but on top of that, there's that first sort of second level guardrail. So for two reasons, travel was just a similar business to the Groupon business originally, but travel just had a lot more longevity and just a much better business model. So we just pivoted to travel more and more from 2011, 12, 13. 13, we launched Luxury Escapes as a standalone brand, really to, to work more closely with hotels and then just built that business up more and more. And that's been our focus really for the last seven or eight years. We'll get to unpicking the luxury escape business model in a second. I just want to pick up on a, a few things. As I said, I'll, I'll put some longer founding stories in the show notes because people will get a sense from that that it is deep and convoluted and there are some great anecdotes of you trying to get rid of bed bugs by putting mattresses in in saunas and all kinds of crazy hustle stories that uh, can only go with bootstrapping your own business. A couple of lessons on the way that have allowed you to build a big business in luxury escapes with a little bit of a head start, and that is you understood pretty quickly what can be scalable. You needed a business model that needed to be efficient and, in many respects, capital light. You needed to maximise and guarantee the experience of both the supply and the demand side of the network and also shore up supply by having a, a clear proposition while generating demand i mean this is all classic marketplace stuff and so if we were to move that and those lessons to the business model that was horizon one for luxury escapes and that was what i think you've termed the flash part of your business in this highly curated marketplace and it has allowed you to engage a very specific and targeted customer but i'm I'm keen just to dig into both sides of the marketplace and how you've thought about creating a value proposition for both the supply being the hotels and also your customers, the the demand side as well. So the two things we solve with our flash model for the customer is this great curation inspiration. So if you went to Luxury Escapes, there'd be five or 10 products on the site, one for Bali, one for Thailand, maybe one for Maldives. And you go, oh, that's an incredible deal. I wasn't planning on going to that hotel, but that deal's so good, I'm going to go there. I'm going to change from Thailand to Bali or vice versa. I'm going to go to Vietnam instead of London or whatever it was. So we gave this great curation inspiration. We also spent a lot of time talking about the property. So we'd film videos, we'd send video crews there, we'd write a lot of content. It's not the stock content you're going on booking.com. So we give a lot more information to customers. So there's a lot more knowledgeable going in before they book. 
and obviously we give this great price. So it's 30 to 50% off the value you'd find elsewhere. So virtually all travel sold at what we call par or best available rates or bar, whereas we come in at that 30 to 50% off in terms of value. So how we calculate that value is we would never be 50% off the cost. So it's not going to be 100 bucks instead of 200 bucks. Ritz-Carlton London is 200 bucks a night. Would never be that price. Let's say it was 200 bucks a night. We might sell it for 150 bucks or 160 bucks and then give a free breakfast and a free dinner or a club lounge access. So we'd, we'd add that extra value and that's how you come up with our discount. We compare our discount whenever we run a campaign. We have a, some pretty detailed modelling. We make sure we're discounted across the whole period. Compare it, we scrape the internet, we make sure where we are at the best price. So the customer is getting a genuinely good deal because customers are pretty smart. If you try and hoodwink them, they just won't come back or they won't buy. Probably the more important piece is how are you guys able to get this 30, 40, 50% off? Doesn't make any sense, sounds too good to be true. And that was a big issue we have on the customer side for many years and still have. The way we can get our discounts is, there's really sort of four reasons. The first one's the most important one we talked about before, is incrementality. So hotels virtually never run 100% occupancy or very rarely do. And more importantly, hotels have high and low, especially resorts. So if you look at Thailand, from November to March, they're pretty full, it can be 80 to 90% full. And then from April to October, they're often 40, 50% full. It can be the best hotel in Thailand. It's, it's a low height model. So they just, they just don't run full all the time. So the hotels in Thailand know in June, they're 40, 50% occupied. And that's great for Australians who have holidays in June, July. So we actually fit a really nice niche there. Now we sell internationally, but certainly back then we were just Australian. What we were able to do is we were able to fill rooms that are going to be empty. So we give revenue where revenue wouldn't be there. And because it goes to that 96% incrementality point is we're selling rooms that not only wouldn't be bought, but wouldn't be bought by people who don't even know about the hotel. We have a stat that 67% of our customers weren't going to the country they bought till they saw in Lottery Escape. So we genuinely change travel behaviour and travel patterns, which benefits hotels. So reason one is we give lots of revenue in a really quick time when the hotels are otherwise not full. So they know we're not competing against a $200 night room, we're competing against a zero or even a negative because hotels can make incremental revenue. And what's more, not only do we give incremental revenue, we actually give more revenue than most other channels. So maybe not a booking, but take out sort of maybe booking Expedia, we give more revenue in two weeks than most channels give in a year. So it's lots of revenue really quickly, albeit at a lower rate. Second thing we give for hotels and resorts and, and tour partners is we don't just sell a bed and a room. We never do that. We sell lots of other stuff. Consumers love it. So customers love getting the breakfast and the dinners and the massages and transfers and whatever it is. So customers love that, but hotels love it because this stuff's much higher yielding. So you think a hotel's got a, a restaurant on the property, they're paying their staff probably the same amount because you need a staff for a restaurant. Obviously, you're buying your food. Yeah, there's a bit of variable cost there, but you, you've paid your capital, you've got your DNA, that doesn't change. So there's a heap of sunk cost in there. So your margin's 60 to 80% on spa, on F&B, on rooms, all that kind of stuff. If we can include that, which we do, we're getting a much higher yield because owners care about EBITDA. They don't care about ADR. ADR is a value metric that the brands use. All the owners really care about is how much money they're making because they're going to flip a hotel on a, on a multiple basis. So we make owners lots of money because of those two things. Third way we make owners money is we're essentially an early bird model. We actually also have a last minute model, but we're, the core business is early birds. The average luxury escape customer buys six months in advance. So any business is willing to give a discount for early bird because they can yield up. So whilst we may be cheaper than other channels, because we feel... 10, 20, 30% of the base load of the hotel, like air crew, smart hotel revenue managers go, oh, now we're 30% full, we'll yield up on other channels, we'll charge more on every other channel. So hotels actually make more money from higher yielding than they lose on the ADR discount for much of escapes. Fourth thing we give hotels is great, what we call billboard effect. So we've had deals we've run that get 
for individual deals, a million views. This is more than a hotel would probably get in 10 years. So we can drive more eyeballs to a hotel name, brand, landing page, and hotels get almost a million views that don't look at us because everybody who sees the luxury case probably also goes to the hotel website. So hotels getting millions of views as well. So even an average deal for us might get forty or 50,000 views, which is, again, more than a hotel will get in a year likely. So we create this great PR billboard effect as well for hotels. So if you sort of accumulate all those four reasons, hotels make, essentially make more money. So we're able to facilitate this transaction where what we try and do across all our business, and Flash is a great example we do across all our businesses, we want to create a win-win-win. Hotel wins, make more money. Customer wins, gets this great experience. And we can just sit in the middle and take a small margin. Our margin is pretty small, which is common for travel. Uh, we don't make fashion margins or SaaS margins or anything like that that you're probably used to, but because but TTV is high for travel. So yeah, we think the, the Flash model, it's got its difficulties from a, from a corporate perspective, but from a, from a customer perspective, I think, I think it's a really good model. Two things to pick out there, just to touch on what was a great breakdown of the utility for both sides of the marketplace. One is around building trust. And I know when you first started, there were these huge ads in the paper that, as you alluded to, too good to be true. 50% off a a trip to Thailand. And I'm sure a lot of people thought it was a scam. I was probably in in that bucket (laughs) until, again, my wife went to Thailand and had the trip of her lifetime, notably without me, but came back and said, this is the real deal. This luxury escapes thing is not a scam. How have you thought about building trust on the demand side, particularly starting a brand fresh and in something that is so emotive and does have a, a large basket size like travel does? What you've sort of encapsulated there is, I guess, the perfect problem we had from the customer side. So we have two differences in the business. One is one of the problems with Flash, the good is it's a great barrier to entry. The hard part, though, is these flash deals are really hard to negotiate. So the hotels still have to get over the fact that they're giving us a significantly better offer than everywhere else, which no one really likes doing because you'd obviously rather charge as much as you can prima facie. So that's the challenge we have. So we have to fight really hard to get our supply, which is really unusual. So if you're looking at a business, Guzman & Gomez doesn't have to fight very hard for its product. It buys it from a supplier and it's a phone call. We have to spend, we can spend five years negotiating it to get a deal. Someone takes two weeks, someone takes five years. So it's like an enterprise sale to get our stock, which is not great. Usually you're doing enterprise sales to get your customers if you're a B2B business. That's one challenge of the Flash model. And it's partly the reason why we moved to Marketplace as well as Flash, which we'll talk about. Uh, but to your point, the other challenge we had is, is customer trust. So we have the benefit of great viral growth. And your wife's a great example. People who take electric escapes generally really like it and travels viral. And we have the similar benefit that Airbnb has. And, and one of the great things about Airbnb is obviously it's a strong brand. 90% of its traffic is, is organic or it's non-paid. We're similar. We're about 85% organic. So we have a similar thing. You don't say, oh, I went to Japan and stayed in a villa. You say, I went on an Airbnb in Japan or in Tokyo. Same thing, if you go on a luxury escape to Thailand, people will say, I took a luxury escape to Thailand or I took a luxury escape to Bali or Maldives. You never say, I took an Expedia to Maldives. You say, I stayed at the, the Chevrolet Block, wherever you stayed. So we've got that inherent brand association, but that's taken a long time to build. And it's been really a lot of social proof. So yeah, you, we did a lot of newspaper advertising early because it's that great medium to add trust because people see a newspaper ad they're more likely to believe it than obviously an online ad because there's the inherent distrust of everything online if you think of the trust hurdle that businesses have to jump over and obviously the hurdle is a different height based on the business if i'm buying a pair of airpods from the apple store there's zero trust hurdle you trust apple as a product and i'm I'm getting the airpods from this person in the store so i've got there's no risk at all if i'm buying from airpods from apple online there's like a small amount of risk, but minimal risk because Apple's really good at delivering and, and you can always get a refund, it doesn't come. 
if you're buying a pair of AirPods from overseas and they've got to ship it to you because you're buying on grey market somewhere, yeah, it can be a bit more risk again, but worst case, you don't get your AirPods, you get a chargeback. Like, it's not the end of the world. If you're buying travel, overseas travel, it's like the highest risk level of everything. So you're buying online, which is high risk for customers because they don't trust online. You're buying a high basket size, $2,000 basket size, and probably most pertinently, you're rocking up in Bali or Thailand. You don't want to rock up 10 o'clock at night to your hotel and not exist, don't have your booking. It's, it looks like it looks terrible. There's, there's a bunch of things you really need to trust with travel. So most people can name probably five or six travel businesses. They're all probably pretty massive. Booking, Expedia, Sea Trip, Airbnb, Flight Centre. That's probably what most people can name. Maybe Hello World. They're all massive businesses. So there aren't that many travel sort of startups, whereas you can get away with e-commerce startup, all that kind of stuff. So we spent really yet 10, 12 years building social proof and, and building customer trust and trying our best to make sure we deliver a great customer experience, both from the value side, but also we, as a result, we over-invest in customer service, both pre and post sale. We have a locally based customer service teams around the world. So if you're calling from Australia, you'll almost certainly 99.9% chance speak to an Australian person. Maybe you speak to someone in America if it's 2am because we have 24-7, 365-day year phone lines and you can usually get through within a couple of minutes and Amazon target 60 seconds probably not quite that we're not far behind so we spend a lot of effort on on customer service because we know that the value of these customers is high like our CPA is $300 plus so it's an expensive consumer acquisition we don't want to burn consumers by giving them a bad experience or even worse kicking our own goal and 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 treating them badly so generally when we when we do have sort of negative NPS comments. It's almost always the customer was disappointed with the hotel for whatever reason. So it could have been we, we didn't represent it right, which 1% of the time happens. Could have been the hotel just did something wrong, which nobody's perfect, humans make mistakes. But we have sort of 95% positive customer reviews publicly and NPS is generally sort of 70, revolves from 69 to 72. So um, very consistently so. So we, we just spent a lot of investment in making sure the customer experience is is what you get if you're going to a high-end travel agent, but we're much more of a mass market travel agent. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. The last thing I do want to glean from this Horizon One and, and you touched on this early bird offer is obviously get paid up front and so that has allowed you to scale in a very capital effective way and in many respects fund your own business for the first 10 years of its existence that that is a rarity but it's the beauty of the business model so we were bootstrapped till late last year when we did a post-covid round or end of covid round just to sort of clean the balance sheet up and give them secondary but it was a pretty small round in terms of dilution um we were into covid with 105 million bucks in the bank a year later, we had $104 million bucks in the bank. So it was a, it's a really stable cash, and the business generates a lot of cash. Although that's changed slightly for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Marketplace has reduced the window. So flash people book more in advance, Marketplace is much sooner. And also, we about three months ago, we introduced a deposit product. Call it our own version of Afterpay, but better. If you're buying a pair of jeans, Afterpay's great for customers, but, but travels doesn't suit the Afterpay model as well because it's six months six month window and you've got to pay it off in eight weeks. What our product does is you pay a 20% deposit upfront and you've got to pay the rest of it sort of 45 to 60 days pre-travel. So if you're booking two years in advance, we don't have access to that cash anymore, but our conversion rates literally skyrocket because people are much happier paying 20% down than 100% down, but we have to build the technology ourselves. So, And we'll soon be launching a better than afterpay product. So you'll be able to pay weekly over 
two years or fortnightly over two years or two year travel. So a much more flexible after pay product. But yeah, initially we were able to bootstrap because we had that great negative working capital model. It's a, a great call out for anyone thinking about trying to build a business. You've touched on this what I'd call Horizon 2 marketplace model or Lux premium listings. So moving away from the flash sale element and in many respects, this highly curated marketplace is now moved to an open marketplace and you have them sitting on the same site, side by side. One, as I said, highly curated, very easy to target customers. And then all of a sudden on the other side of the open marketplace, this paradox of choice where as is the case for, for many open marketplace, you can be crippled by the sheer volume of hotels on offer. How have you thought about trying to scale these two businesses side by side? I'm curious to dig into that and then maybe also how this came about because it has a, a great founding story sort of incubation period that came through COVID as well that I wouldn't mind touching on. Let me answer the second one first. If you look at the challenge of Flash and the productivity of Flash, apart from the fact that it's, it's really labour-intensive and costly to negotiate these deals, the TAM of the Flash business is probably two or three billion, even looking at a global TAM. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a bigger business than we are now and we keep growing into that footprint, but it's inherently limited because you can only run so many deals at the same time. So eventually you just sort of reach the, the upper limit. And you saw the same for last minute products. So Hotel Tonight, for example, became an OTA. What If became an OTA. So those sort of niche hotel businesses eventually become marketplaces. It's kind of inevitable. We love the flash business, still a majority of our business, by far the majority of our revenue. Uh, but we knew going into COVID, so a couple of our shareholders, guys called Gabby and Hezzy Leibovich, who founded the Catch of the Day, had a similar journey on the product side. Catch of the Day was a flash sales business based on Woot, um, which Amazon bought eventually. And they were the deal a day business and gradually became sort of multiple deals a day, but inherently this flash sales business. And they, they got to about $250 million in turnover 2013 and kind of just sort of stuck there and couldn't get higher. The profitability was reducing and I don't know it was Hezzy or Gabby, probably both of them came up with the idea of a, effectively a Sorry Bay doing marketplace really well, obviously saw Amazon and they started doing effectively a curated marketplace on Catch of the Day and they then sold it to West Farmers but the business sort of turned over well, well over a billion dollars. So we were able to break that ceiling just because they had more products and those guys who had seen that experience at Catch kept pushing us pre-COVID, you guys got to do marketplace, you guys got to do marketplace and that, they're in, certainly Hez is in favour of, of a really wide open marketplace which I was always, and actually most of us were always quite worried about because as you mentioned Paradox of Choice, Luxury Escape's flash business solves the paradox of choice. By adding a marketplace, you just create the problem you're solving. It kind of doesn't make sense. So we knew we wanted to go to marketplace to expand the product mix, but at the same time, we also didn't want to kill the golden goose because we had a profitable business and, and it was doing pretty well and growing. So we wanted to try and sort of thread the needle there. Anyway, we sort of kept putting it off. It was no great urgency. COVID came. I was actually working sort of outside. The, I was in the business a couple of days a week, but was doing a bunch of other stuff. We had a CEO in and then sort of, just the idea sort of all accumulated. COVID happened, basically had the choice. We could do what every other travel business did and fire half the staff or two thirds of the staff. But we had, we only had 200 people at the time. So it wasn't a huge team. And we, we had some really good people and we didn't want to lose this great talent. So I thought, well, question for us was, how do we, how do we go from market-based concept to reality? And how do we use COVID as a reason to do that? So what happened with COVID is half the hotels around the world shut. Australians couldn't leave Australia. So half our sales team didn't have anything to do because the region was shut. So we basically said to half the team, you guys focus on Flash in Australia because we could sell domestically, certainly from June 2020. The other half, you guys go and start negotiating a different type of deal. So we're going to negotiate deals with hotels around the world, which are always on 
but better than anyone else. So we want to still solve the paradox of choice, but give a bit of choice. Again, if you look at the problem we're trying to solve with Marketplace, we would do detailed qual quant studies into our customers for years before COVID. What they told us was really contradictory. They basically said, we love luxury escapes, huge NPS, huge CSAT. We love everything you do, but we don't buy everything from you. We still go to booking and flight centre and whatever else. And we go, well, hold on, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you love us, but you don't buy from us. And they go, well, yeah, we love you, but you don't have what we want. We want to go to London. You don't have any London. We want to go to Dubai. You've only got this thing in Abu Dhabi. We want to go to Thailand, but you've got Bali. So we thought, well, we've got to solve that problem. The way we came up with solving the problem is we, we're not going to beat Booking.com because Booking.com are a dominant beast with connections and 20 years of AB testing and $100 billion valuation. So we're not going to beat Booking. We're not going to beat Airbnb. What we are really good at is we understand curation. We understand impulse-driven purchasing. Let's take that, extend it. So instead of having zero products in London or maybe one thing a year. Let's go have 20, 25 products that we'll heavily curate. So there's a thousand properties in London we could put on the site. Let's choose 25, like a mix of price, geographic location, brand, whatever it is. Uh, we'll put that on the site and also have flash deals as well. So, you know, you can always go to Luxuriescapes, type in London or Berlin or New York. And instead of getting zero, you'll get 20, 25, 30 really great properties, still often get free inclusion. So you might go to London and stay at the Shard and get free breakfast, which costs 70 bucks a day uh, per person and get a free cocktail at night. Or you could go to Thailand and get a daily massage and free dinners over five days. And the, and the inclusions grow as you stay longer. So reward people who stay longer because that, you know, that's what hotels want. So we had half the team started scouring the world to negotiate agreements with, with hotels. We've got about 1,200 direct hotels live now. Targets to get to about 5,000, which we'll get there probably in about two years. We're doing about 50 to 60 a week now. Um, and we have great coverage around the world. So if you go to Bali, you'll see 60 or 70 great always on properties in addition to flash properties. So you get something in Ubud, something in Sanua, something in Nusadua, something in Seminyak, wherever you want to go. Uh, we've got much better selection. And that's not just Bali, it's also... We got stuff in Memphis. We got stuff in San Diego. We got stuff in Vancouver. So it's the places that we wouldn't sell enough to justify flash deals, but we can just tick over in the background with marketplace. So we created this sort of synthetic model of still got flash. Flash is still the dominant part of our revenue, but marketplace is now about forty percent of transactions by number, and we expect it becomes the majority within next year. Uh, so eventually, we think marketplace becomes ninety percent. Our big challenge is how do we grow our business globally? Travel businesses inherently scale globally. Every great travel business is a global business. We're still eighty percent. Australia source market, but uh, international is growing every day. US is growing really well, um, but still has ridiculous amount of upside. We've sort of grown this marketplace business in the last year. It's really exciting. We've also got a bunch of demand tools on the back of that. But if you look at our journey, we went from travel marketplace to really what we are now is how do we then go the next step and create the best travel booking and use and travel experience using technology, which is sort of caught the next phase of our journey. So we've built up our supply and now we've spent the last year how do we build these great demand tools to supercharge supply. I do want to touch on quickly the capital allocation decision, in this case the human capital allocation decision at a time under some duress when your revenue essentially goes to zero during COVID to, to reallocate that to something that you'd wanted to do for, for some time would have taken a huge amount of courage, but you've now seen the benefit having built the next phase of your business under some pressure and, and really has set you up. Let's move to Horizon 3 as you touched on, that is these demand tools, be it, I imagine, a trip builder. You've talked about financing options. I know you've got a physical site now in Melbourne. Keen to understand 
the permission you have to layer in more utility now with four and a half million members globally, how are you thinking about really getting this demand side humming? Yeah, it's probably it's the billion dollar question for us. And if you look at supply side, especially marketplace, that's been done before. It's using channel managers, the site miners, the synexes of this world to connect to properties. Every OTA does it. It's not novel. What we're doing differently a bit is we're not just doing hotels. So we're creating a site that has multiple marketplaces. So we talked about the hotel marketplace, which is which is great, but we're also building you know, built and experiences marketplace. So you've probably heard of Red Balloon, Get Your Guide, Buy Tour, Kluke. We've built our own version of that. So you can go to our site and buy tens of thousands of experiences, which obviously dovetails beautifully into hotels because really you'd be saying the most beautiful hotel in Madrid, but then you sit on the edge of the bed and go, what do I do now? So it's the hotel sort of 10% of the journey in some ways, but your, your holiday is created by experiences. So we want to create the complete experience in a sense. So we're probably only a quarter way through that. And we really want to have a, a big focus on live events, so be it sporting events, theatre, performances, and, and dining. So it's, if you look at the sort of get your guide, which is we think by far the leader in the experience space, great at that sort of attraction stuff, not great at dining or, or events. So we think we can have a bit of a competitive advantage there. But what we're trying to do is just how to create better trips for people. So uh, we're building multiple marketplaces. So there's hotels, experiences, obviously flights, which we sell, which everybody sells building a villas marketplace, so a mini air, luxury Airbnb. Also doing cruises. Cruises is something that really isn't bought online. Most people who buy a cruise have to call up somebody, which is a really unwieldy way to do it. We'll have thousands of cruises online, browsable, bookable, to the point where you can choose your stateroom from the, from the map. So very few sites on earth do that. We'll, we'll have that. And the final one uh, is tours, which we have our own tours and we work with third parties as well. So we'll have, we've got 500 tours live and bookable all online now. So we'll have the complete marketplace of marketplaces. Some flight, travel agents might be able to do this, but probably not everything. Uh, so no one in the world really will have our range of inventory. We don't have the depth of inventory that others have, but that's intentional. So we're never going to have 500,000 hotels like Airbnb. We're not going to be a skyscanner. Uh, we're not going to be as deep as Kluke in terms of experiences. We want to be more targeted and specialised, so we want to give people what they want. So we've got all these, called six marketplaces, as well as our Flash product. And then the challenge for us is how do we put these together? So how do we create the great booking and travelling experience? And that's where Trip Planner comes along. So Trip Planner, again, it's not a novel concept. Lots of businesses have built trip planning tools. Trip, it's a well-known one. Skyscanners tried to build one. Booking.com talked about it for 20 years. I think the reason why no one's really nailed that product, we think there's two reasons. Firstly is... No travel business really is UX focused. So Bookings is great AB engine with a great list. Even Airbnb, which has done pretty well, got rid of most of these guys and girls sort of as COVID hit and they, they, they listed. Travel businesses haven't really innovated since the OTA in 2002. So there's very little innovation for customers in travel. So what we, what we think we can do is, is combine our great breadth of product not depth, but breadth of product with a booking planning tool, which morphs into a connected trip planning tool. So what we've launched, we're actually about to launch now, we've been in beta for six weeks, is a trip planning tool where you can book your flights, your airport transfers, your hotels, obviously, your experiences when you're on the ground, book your own stuff and really easily enter it in, or you can book our stuff with one, one swipe or click. It's always mobile in your pockets, mobile, for, genuine mobile first product. So it's not just a trip planning tool where you're just booking stuff elsewhere and putting it in, in our site. You can actually book everything on our site or book elsewhere. So you've got the, the option to do whatever you want. So version one of Trip Planner, which we're we'll launching any day, people have been using it. We've had, I think, 10,000 trips planned already. But version one is you build your own trip from nothing, which is great. Version two will be, we'll create these templated trips. So we'll, we'll merge all our inventory. We'll get experts on Morocco or on Germany, on 
America or on South America, wherever, on Australia, wherever you're traveling, Vietnam. So someone can create this incredible trip of Vietnam from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City, staying at these three places on the way, go to these restaurants, because we know these restaurants are really good. These experiences are great. We'll be able to sell them all or you can buy them elsewhere. And the trip looks beautiful in your pocket. You can drag and drop and change and share with family, and plan with family and friends. Tell your friends about it when you're on the trip. So gloat about how good your holiday is. Add, add images, whatever you want to do. And then probably the more exciting thing is when you're on your trip, we're going to be feeding you suggestions and how do we make your trip better. So if you think if you go to a travel agent, they'll print you out a PDF or maybe give you a, a file of a static trip. But you're sort of on your own. What Trip Planner does is allow you to change the trip and, and add stuff as you go. So you rock up in London. You can order room service from your phone if you're in the cab on the way to the hotel. You can book your Chelsea match for the next day because Chelsea's playing and swipe. You can book your museum tickets. You can book your transport. Uh, you can book your airport transfers. You can book your quick flight to Barcelona. Book your cruise from Barcelona to Rome, whatever you want to do. So you'll be able to add to it. It's effectively a living, breathing itinerary, unlike a static itinerary, that we're helping you by making great suggestions, which eventually are based on on AI by using what personalised data we have on, on our customers and what other, other similar users have used. So we think there's just so much scope to convert us from a, if you look at us two years ago, we were a, effectively an industrial business. We were valued similarly to Flight Centre, which is a great business, but it's valued like an old school industrial. What we want to be in two years' time is how do we use technology to make trips better and be really scalable globally, not just in Australia. Fascinating insight that the common threads right throughout these three horizons that I've heard You've always over-indexed on user experience and customer experience. You've always tried to, in where you can, rely on product and technology to lead the business, but it's always been customer-centric. And I think it segues nicely into the next section of people and culture because it starts with the values and to, to call a few of your values out not just to serve the employee, but to serve the customer. One of your values is make people happy by curating and selling the world's best holiday experiences. Fascinating to see how that all ties in. Let's dig into the people and culture. Let's start with your journey as the starting point to this moment. You did allude to stepping away from the business for 18 months. I'm keen to really understand what prompted that time away, what inspired coming back and and what's changed since. There's a few reasons for it, and it's probably probably don't have time to go into all the detail with it. But we were looking at potentially selling the business. Uh, I think shareholders, as a group, probably thought we wanted to professionalise management. And this is probably at a time where founders were slightly out of vogue, and they come in and out, as you know, probably back in vogue now quite highly. Although that may change again. Um, and I've been 365 days a year, nine years in a row, and five years doing customer service emails on the weekend. So it was a pretty hard slog. And the ability to sort of step out, I had a really great time for 18 months, started playing golf again for the first time in 10 years. You work with lots of founders, and especially founders who start from day zero. You, you just did everything and you can't sort of help but be in everything. It sort of forced me out of a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been in. Uh, and I'm still a founder, I still probably micromanage too much stuff, but I micromanage a hell of a lot less stuff than I used to. So now I'm probably a bit more of a Goldilocks point where I don't put myself in this category, but the great founders, really understand detail, but can step out really quickly, but can step in and out when they need to. Coming out of the business, A, it, it really taught me the importance of how important a team is. So the first thing we did when we came back was just reassess, do we have the right talent to take this business to the next level? As you know, the talent you need in a $100 million business is very different to 200 million, very different to 500, very different to billion, very different to 10 billion. And we, we had a great team for probably the stage we were at, but to scale up the business, we needed a different team. So 
you know, first thing we did was shy our, our CTO, CPO, who, who moved to Amazon. We got him back. He'd spent a year at Amazon, so he came back a much better leader as well. Um, we had a bunch of guns in the LT who, who stayed and who were still with us, which is great. And then we just set up sort of filling out that ELT, SLT. So hired sort of some other really good people and, and some people moved on and have got really good roles and just to really understood the importance of, of, of great talent. And we're pretty lucky in a sense that we sell we sell happiness. So selling travel is a pretty fun business to be in. And if you can't keep great people in a business like ours, you're doing something wrong. It's much harder if you're in other business, if you're selling cigarettes or whatever, like it's a harder business. Um, but we're lucky enough that we're selling a product people love. We sell discounted travel, which is even better, and it's luxury travel. So we sort of have that sort of perfect storm of, of good luck, as you sort of need to, obviously, to scale up a business. But we don't think we're perfect. Absolutely, we're not perfect at everything. We just try and get as much stuff right as we can, both from a customer perspective and a people perspective. And we try and now hire really for culture, culture and, and smarts, obviously. We we generally probably won't hire people who've spent a long time in big business because this we know it doesn't fit our culture that well. Uh, if someone's been from a small business to a big business and leaves pretty quickly, that's great. So Julia, our brilliant chief of staff, come from coal. So obviously a massive business, but, but just didn't like it. Wanted to come back to a sort of scale up and has been incredible. So it's that we want to find a certain person who loves that sort of tough, gritty, entrepreneurial, day one business. And it's not for everyone. So you've just got to pick and, pick and match. So when there is someone who's great at that, we need to obviously make sure we, we sell our business well to them. And we don't want to pay as much as, as a US-based Silicon Valley-funded startup. But we, we pay, so we think is really good market rates with great incentive upside. And we're in that great scale-up point. So the risk of coming on to join a leadership team isn't as high as a startup. You've got some great upside, which you don't get if you're working at Atlassian, which has sort of already had its scale-up period. Two questions come to mind. One is just that classic scaling people and culture pain point around building out an executive team. And I think you've gone after COVID, as you alluded to, from seven executives to almost 20, just really building out the support around the founding team and the leaders and has allowed you to move a bit quicker. But just what you touched on there around not being the best payers, what other quivers in the bow do you have so to speak apart from REM that you are very focused on to make sure that you're attracting and retaining the best talent oh, this is my view so I'm not sure if this is business view but it, in a way it pervades it but you don't quit a job you quit a boss so if you've got a bad boss it's, it's probably the, the classic reason people tend to quit you want people to want to enjoy coming to work and if, you, if coming to work is a chore and unenjoyable you've kind of lost. You sort of have to pay more. You have to let people work from home. Whatever it is, you've got to give other stuff that isn't necessarily real value. If you look at the businesses that allow people to work from home, and as you know, I've got strong thoughts on work from home, but a lot of the businesses that are sort of really allowing the work from home is because they're struggling in other areas, like their ex-growth, the, the product's boring, whatever the reason is. That I want people to be friends with people they work with. And like most businesses of our scale, I have lots of couples that, 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 that emanate from the business. But if people are friends with people they work with and actually just enjoying coming to work, and it's less about the sort of perks for the nature of the perks, but what the perks give. So I wouldn't want a, a sort of five-star Michelin-prepared lunch where people come and eat and, in a, sort of by themselves. I'd much rather have a, a much cheaper communal lunch that's just fun and, and the food's still great, but it's just a different feel. So we want to try an environment people just love to come and work in, and with that's far more valuable than an extra 10 grand, because ultimately the 10 grand... Once you pay tax and, and it kind of just gets, goes to your bank account, it gets, gets forgotten about. But 
you spend more time at work than at home. If you don't like what you do, we've sort of failed our, we've failed our team if people don't like coming to work, if the environment's not fun, if, if we haven't done everything we can to make that environment good. So we're, yeah, absolutely not perfect, but we certainly try and do our best in that respect. In many respects, you're selling great experiences to your customers, but you're also selling a great experience to your employees as well. And for anyone that does want to read your views on work from home that I similarly share. I might put a, a link to a few articles you've written so we don't end up down that rabbit hole for another half an hour. The last question around people and culture is around coaching and mentoring and you touched on many employees leaving jobs because of their manager and, and being average. You do a lot of mentoring of young entrepreneurs. You host a fantastic podcast. I'll put a, a link to that also in the show notes. What's been the role of coaches in your journey how have you found it helpful? I know even in my life in sport many moons ago when I was struggling to go and coach young kids would sometimes really crystallise the errors that I was making at a, at a professional level. So I'm curious as to the role of the coach in your life and why you continue to give back to the ecosystem. It's a really good point. Uh, it's something you probably don't think about enough, but is I'm, I'm still on sort of three or four board, three not-for-profits and a couple of scala boards. Uh, and it's so much easier to look in someone else's business that I find I can actually be a much better analyzer of other businesses than I am of ours because we're, we're in it. Um, so the ability to sit on a board, especially with founders who you sort of always going to take a sympathetic line to a founder as a founder, but to be able to sit on a board, and I don't know how much value I add on boards. Maybe it's not much, maybe it's a little bit, uh, but just to go through the process is really helpful. Uh, in terms of, I guess, that mentor, I haven't been a huge one for mentors. Uh, our former chairman, Pat O'Sullivan, has been incredible. Uh, Pat has been chairman at Car Sales for a number of years, probably the best professional director in the country. Uh, and Andrew McAvoy, our current chairman, is incredible, uh, just a travel industry Luminary, got a great board with with Ido Leffler, who's a superstar entrepreneur. I've got another great couple of great directors, Gabby Leibovich, who's a founder catch of the day. Josh was a co-founder of this business. Jeremy, my, my co-founder as well. Mark, another co-founder. So we've got a bunch of people who who sort of been around and, and can just bounce things off, and also can most importantly tell me when I'm doing something really stupid. Uh, and it's it's that really tough balancing act as a founder CEO is having the courage to push forward with stuff, but not not being completely reckless to the consequences. And it's that balancing act. So obviously you don't want to be a dictator who ignores advice and, and you could argue Elon Musk at Twitter is probably suffering a bit of that. On the flip side, he's probably doing a lot of stuff he needs to do, but, but it, there's probably no one to control him. So it's how do you get that balance? You're still being aggressive and trying and doing things and taking chances. And classic middle management dilemma in a big company is doesn't make any sense to try something because if it goes well someone else steals the credit if it goes badly get fired so you, what we're trying to always do is remove that and the beauty of being a founder is you don't really have that risk like you've got to do a lot of stuff wrong to get fired and eventually that time comes but you've got a lot of advantages of being a founder but how do you sort of balance those things so how do you, how do you set up the guardrails to make sure you don't do things that are really stupid and Jeremy's great at that Jez will, will certainly give his opinion on everything some stuff will just disagree with it like I'll make the call I'm still going to go with notwithstanding your points which are valid I think there's eight reasons we should do it, four reasons we shouldn't, well, let's do it because we want to make a lot of asymmetric bets. So retail store is a classic example. We opened our first retail store. If retail works for us, that's a billion-dollar opportunity. If it doesn't, it's cost a couple of million bucks. So the 501 upside justifies the investment given our scale as a business. Uh, that's not to say it'll work for sure. So far, the sign's actually pretty good in the first week, but it may not work. But if it does work, it's... We're able to test and learn and trials, and it's a classic two-way door. So we all talk about the one-way, two-way. We want to try and go through as many two-way doors as we can and just really recognise where it's a one-way. 
Adam, this has been an awesome hour. I hope the listeners had their seatbelts on because that was a, a crash course in how to work their way through trial and error and, and scaling what has become a massive business. So congratulations on that and, and thank you so much for joining the Scaling Up podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's an honour to, to join.